can turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 8. We'll look at verses 26 through 40. The text is printed in the bulletin also for you. Let me remind you, I didn't talk about any announcements, but it went out in an email this week that uh, the memorial service for Jeff Tuttle is uh, this coming Saturday at 1 o'clock at Evergreen. Uh, Probably many of you uh, remember Barbara was part of our congregation while we were still meeting at Evergreen. Uh, That's um, her son who died this week. So um, pray for them. And uh, if you have um, any questions about how you might support them during this time, feel free to ask me about that. So Acts chapter 8. We started the book of Acts um, last fall and took a break during Advent and then uh, also maintained that break during the month of January to talk about uh, leadership officers in the church. And now we're getting back to Acts. We'll be accelerating through it, highlighting some of the passages that help us think about the, the church's mission to take the gospel out there. Um, so we won't cover every part of Acts. And we'll finish the series a few weeks before Easter. And um, then we'll do a short series on the resurrection and move on after Easter to a new series uh, to be announced. Actually, to be determined. <laughs> so, <clears throat> this morning's text is uh, a beautiful passage focusing on God's grace for people with ruined, dead-end lives. Uh, God's love for outsiders who otherwise have no hope of belonging. So, let's pray and then we'll read God's word. <clears throat> Father, we need your help. We've come to you this morning because we acknowledge our need for your forgiveness, your cleansing, the transformation that comes by your spirit, the grace that we find in your word and your gospel. We pray that you would make uh, your gospel take hold in our lives uh, down to the very core so that we would be changed by it more and more into the likeness of our Savior and our Lord, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. There was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. 
When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Philip, as you might remember from a couple months ago, uh, or from your own personal reading of the book of Acts, um, is one of the seven, those first officers in the church after the apostles. Uh, He's called Philip the Evangelist in Acts chapter 21, and it's for obvious reasons. uh, And just before our passage here, he had been preaching the gospel in Samaria. He'd been forced there by persecution that was taking place in Jerusalem. And this is what it says a little earlier in chapter 8. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ, the Messiah. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. When they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So that's where he was right before this. Now, one of the things that you notice immediately about our passage this morning (coughs) is God's sovereign orchestration of these events in a surprising way, right? So an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Um, Grammatically, it's probably a little easier to translate the angel's command to Philip as saying, rise and go at noon to the road that goes south down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Uh, The word for noon uh, actually came to be the same word for south because when you're in the northern hemisphere and the sun is at its highest point, it's directly south. So it's a a chronological term that uh, came to have geographical meaning. Um, All that to say this, I. Howard Marshall, a commentator, says that the angelic command took Philip away from the scene of successful evangelism and led him to a place which must have seemed entirely inappropriate for further Christian work. Right? Get up from your life as an evangelist in a growing megachurch and head out into the middle of nowhere into the desert during the hottest part of the day when no one's out and take the road that leads you away from your target audience. Right. Okay. <clears throat> Philip rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join his chariot. Ethiopia is known in the Old Testament as the land of Cush. It was the, uh, the Nubian kingdom that was just south of Egypt. In Africa, actually, uh, it's not present-day Ethiopia; it's present-day Sudan. Present-day Ethiopia is just south of that. <laughs> so, um, it, but it was at the edge of the known world, according to the Roman civilization at the time. Uh, Ethiopia was ruled by kings and queens, but apparently, uh, the queens had the real power, and the queen's name was Candace, and it wasn't her personal name; it was a dynastic name passed down from generation to generation, uh, from queen to queen. 
The man on the chariot in the desert was a eunuch. He'd been castrated, uh, which was done in ancient oriental courts so that men could serve around wealthy, royal, prominent women without the risk of the men getting uh, feisty in any way. Um, It was usually not a voluntary procedure, as you might imagine. At some point, this fellow had been chosen to serve the queen, and it might have been originally as a kind of a personal servant or a bodyguard, but um, maybe he worked his way up to this, but now he's the, uh, the court treasurer. It's an official position. He's been given the highest security clearance at the cost of any hope of having a family. On top of that, as if it weren't bad enough, Becoming a eunuch had cost him the ability to become a full proselyte to Judaism. Uh, He was a Gentile, so he would have had to convert, but uh, he was obviously devoted to the God of Israel. He had obtained a copy of at least a part of the scriptures, which was very expensive, and he had made a difficult pilgrimage of over 500 miles through the desert to go to the temple in Jerusalem for worship. But he's a eunuch, which means that he's not welcome. Right? In a sense, even Gentiles are welcome. Right? All they had to do was convert and be circumcised. And then they'd be members of the club with full benefits. But he's a eunuch. And uh, this is what God says in Deuteronomy 23. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly, the congregation of the Lord. Awkward passage. Um, Maybe some of you have heard this story before. A few years ago, Nathan Lewis, who's the pastor of Evergreen, uh, when they were planting Shehalem Valley in Newburgh, he was out there in Newburgh, and Robin Williams, the, the comedian, uh, was was in the congregation when he preached a sermon on that passage. <clears throat> After the service, they were uh, discussing the awkwardness of the verse. Mr. Williams commented, I hate to be the priest whose job it was to enforce that law, checking testicles at the gate. <clears throat> um, <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure how they did it. <clears throat> um, but being a eunuch was, uh, was this man's identity, right? I mean, it's, there's an overwhelming emphasis on it in this text. He's called a eunuch five times. We're given no other name for him. It's a fundamental part of who he is, right? He's the mutilated one. He's the sterile one. He's the disgustingly strange one, the the unclean one, the ritually impure one. His physical nature has been irreversibly altered. He's the consummate outsider. Being a eunuch is who he is. It's his identity. And because of that, he would not pass inspection. He had no hope of ever meeting the standard of God's law. He had no place in the assembly among God's people and certainly wasn't admissible to the temple for worship. 
Socially and religiously, he was totally unacceptable to the Jews. He'd made a long journey through the desert just to be rejected for, I mean, obviously things like his ethnicity and his color, but especially for being a eunuch. You know how people are when they're insiders, how they treat outsiders. In spite of being a, a wealthy foreign dignitary, this eunuch was probably treated rather poorly in Jerusalem. And now he's on his way home in the middle of the desert, trying to read the Bible that he just can't understand. And the Spirit sent Philip the Evangelist over to him. <clears throat> so Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. And asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? So this guy is uh, humble. He's eager to learn about the Bible. And since most good Jews wouldn't touch him with a 10-foot pole, he's probably had very little instruction in understanding the scriptures. And so he invited Philip to come up and sit with him, which Philip did, even though it violates all kinds of purity codes. Now, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a, sheep that, uh, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation, for his life is taken away from the earth? And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? So this is just about the most amazing evangelistic opportunity in history. The great preacher, Philip the Evangelist, uh, directed to the remote desert, invited to sit with the extreme outsider who is desperate to understand the Bible, who asks the perfect question about the perfect text. We could probably stand to include in our daily prayers uh, the request for more opportunities like this. The eunuch could not have been reading from a more significant passage about how the gospel connects with someone just like him. He's reading from Isaiah 53. It's a section often referred to as the, uh, the, the suffering servant passage. And the focus of these few lines that are quoted is on the willingness of the servant to suffer injustice and oppression and humiliation, the willingness of the servant to suffer, knowing that he will have no earthly offspring. It says, who can describe his generation? He has no generation to speak of. The, the focus is on the willingness of the servant to suffer being cut off. The Hebrew literally says, cut off. From the earth, his life being taken away from the earth. That sounds a lot like the suffering that this eunuch has endured. Humiliation, injustice, no chance of children, his life and everything he's worked for coming to a dead end, being kept away from God and from life in his kingdom. But the man of sorrows didn't even open his mouth in objection to this. He voluntarily endured being despised and rejected by men. 
Who would suffer these things willingly? Why would he silently submit himself to all this? Why is this in the Bible? What does it mean? Who is this suffering servant of the Lord? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Jesus had taught his disciples that Isaiah wrote about him. Commentator David Peterson says, There is no one else in history apart from Jesus of Nazareth to whom these words can truly be applied. The good news that Philip preached about Jesus is this. Jesus, God come in the flesh, became the ultimate outsider so that outsiders would be welcomed and received by God. Jesus was cut off from the land of the living so that people with dead-end lives could be restored to communion with the living God. Jesus willingly suffered humiliation, injustice, and rejection. And he wasn't just rejected by men. He was rejected by God, his Father. He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. He intercepted and endured the rejection that was coming our way and passed on to us instead the full acceptance and favor of God that he alone deserved as the beloved son, as the only one who belonged because of who he was. Jesus didn't complain. He didn't object. He suffered silently because the Lord loves strangers. He loves foreigners and sojourners and aliens. The Lord loves outsiders, and he wanted to bring them in. Just a few chapters later, in Isaiah's prophecy, in uh, chapter 56, which we read in our Old Testament reading, the prophet wrote this, starting in verse 3, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I'm a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, basically those who enter into a saving relationship with me, I will give in my house, in my temple, within my walls, a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. God is the great gatherer who brings together people from every tribe every tongue, every nation into one house under one roof and makes them one joyful family. He takes people who have no home or hope and he freely gives them both. The eunuch's life was a dead end. He had no children, no legacy. His line had been cut off, literally and 
figuratively. And now because of Jesus, all of that was over. God in his mercy had promised him a monument and a name better than children, an everlasting name that would never end. Now the eunuch's heritage would be greater than the majestic dynasty of all the queens of Ethiopia. The consummate outsider had been brought inside by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. So once again, God's sovereign orchestration of this scene is clear. They come across a rare watering place in the desert where the eunuch who has just heard about Jesus from Philip and been taught the, the basics of the Christian faith apparently put his faith in Christ, asks to be baptized. It's such an unusual story, this leading of Philip to the eunuch miraculously by an angel, the spirit's leading of him, the leading of the eunuch to Jesus. David Peterson draws the conclusion that the initiative in this mission is entirely with God. The initiative in this mission is entirely with God. This is all meant to emphasize the fact that this encounter is something God wanted to happen. And it's something God wanted recorded. And it's something God wanted communicated. God wants you to know that he loves outsiders. He loves outsiders. His word says this in Deuteronomy chapter 10. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Speaking uh, negatively about this, if you don't love the sojourners, the outsiders, then it shows you don't understand God's grace. If you despise the alien, the foreigner, those who are different from you, it shows that you think you're not an alien by nature. That you think somehow innately you're an insider, or you deserve to be an insider. That you can't relate when God says, you also were sojourners in Egypt. You're supposed to be able to relate on a superficial level Uh, You're all strangers and sojourners. How many of you are Native Americans? (laughs) At some point, your family members were aliens here, sojourners, like Israel in the land of Egypt. But on a deeper, more spiritual level, every single person on the planet is naturally alienated from God by sin. We are all outsiders by birth, relationally distant from God. Some are just more outwardly representative of outsiderness than others, like the Ethiopian eunuch or first generation Mexican immigrants. God loves outsiders, and if you don't, that's bad news for you. He says this in Malachi chapter 3 I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, 
against, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. People who would thrust aside the sojourner are in God's judgment in the same category as sorcerers and adulterers. But if you know that left to yourself, apart from God's grace, you are a a hopeless outsider. Without hope of ever meeting God's requirements for fellowship. Without hope of ever meeting God's standard, his law, his moral purity codes to be able to enter into his presence, then it's the most amazing news ever that God loves outsiders, that Jesus died to make you a friend of God. It's the kind of good news that makes you quick to trust in God, make you want to come and be baptized and be received into God's family. If you haven't been baptized, come and talk to me about it. It's the kind of good news that lights you up with unquenchable joy like the eunuch had even if you're at the beginning of a long, dry trek through the desert, alone. It's certainly the kind of good news that if it's really taken root in your soul, it makes you truly able to love other outsiders, other outsiders, to try to overcome language and cultural barriers to friendship, to serve the aliens among us and treat them as part of our community, to treat immigrants and refugees and those who look different from us and those who think differently from us, treat them all as natives, part of our community. It's the kind of good news that makes you recognize that hospitality to strangers is the best demonstration of the gospel that we have. Irenaeus in the second century taught that this eunuch went back to Ethiopia as a missionary in his own homeland, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ at the known ends of the earth. Philip was happily whisked away to his next evangelistic opportunity preaching the gospel to those on the fringes of Israel. The gospel turns outsiders into insiders who live for outsiders. That's just crazy. Let's pray for our own faith in this good news and for more opportunities to tell other outsiders about Jesus. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we marvel at the grace that you have showed us in your life, in your death, in your resurrection, in the peace that you have purchased with your blood, the peace, the reconciliation that we have with God. We who were aliens and strangers to the household of God now being brought in and God's very name being placed upon us, an everlasting name. We thank you for this mercy, for this grace, for this undeserved favor that you have given us. And we pray that we would not take it for granted. Pray that we would not twist it and warp it to fill our own self-righteousness, thinking that we're someone because we're part of your family. We know that 
Uh, We're only someone because you have deigned to dwell with us and abide with us in love uh, by by your own free grace. And so we pray that you would change our hearts and our minds to make us the kind of insiders who live for outsiders, just as you yourself did in coming down from heaven and giving your life for those who were your enemies. We pray this for the sake of your kingdom going forth in this world. Amen.